Our scripture reading is from Matthew 27, 1 through 14, and this is found on page 833 and 34 in your pew Bible. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is this to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and, brought, and bought with it the potter's field as a barrier place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was, what, was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of, whom, of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed them. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Kristen. Well, good morning. Welcome to Christ Community. My name is Bill Gorman. I serve as the campus pastor here, and it's a delight to get to welcome each one of you here along with Kristen. We're really glad that you've uh, chosen to be here with us this morning, and hopefully you found yourself uh, warmly welcomed in this place. And um, as we begin to look at this text that uh, Kristen has just read for us, we always begin by praying and asking that God would would be at work uh, through His Spirit, making His Word come alive in our lives, that um, it wouldn't merely be ink on paper, but that it truly would come alive uh, in each one of our lives exactly uh, where we need it and where we need to hear from God this morning. So I want to pray and ask uh, for God to do that, and then we'll dive in together into this passage. So Father in heaven, thank you so much that you speak to us in creation, that you have not left yourself without a witness, but that in... um, the beauty of creation and all that you have made, it tells us true things about you. But thank you also that you have spoken clearly in your word and through your son um, that we can know your character and your love and your beauty more fully. And so we pray now as we look at this passage of scripture um, that your spirit would be at work doing just that, um, warming our, our affections, our love for Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's hard to believe, at least for me at this point, um, that we're almost an entire decade away from the the beginning of the financial crisis uh, in 2008 when that all began. And I had just started in 2008 working at Christ Community as a pastoral resident. Uh, And I remember being at a conference. I was just been on staff for a couple months. I was at a conference at, at Willow Creek Church in Chicago. And during one of the sessions, I was, I was looking at my iPhone, which, just some historical context, saying you were looking at your iPhone in 2008 was way cooler than today because, like, only a few people had them. It was like it's still in the first edition. So I was looking at my iPhone uh, in 2008, and, and they had this cool stock app on there. 
and there wasn't a lot of other apps for the iPhone yet, but uh, I remember being in this session at Willow Creek, opening the stock app and just watching sort of hour by hour, um, the, the Dow, the NASDAQ, the S&P 500, all these indexes just, just dropping, declining um, throughout the, the day and the weekend that we were there. Well, in 2015, uh, director Adam McKay turned Michael Lewis's book, The Big Short, into an Oscar-winning film. And the film sort of chronicles the, the origins of the financial crisis and some of the aftermath of that event. And whether it's The Big Short or a frontline documentary, as you begin to, to read and learn more about the financial crisis, as you watch that story unfold, you see at least three responses in the investment bankers and other people involved in the crisis as it starts to become obvious that something has gone way too far and, and is going to end badly. And really, those three responses are the responses that all of us have available to us when we realize that things have gone too far and are potentially going to end very badly. And the first one is to defend, that they, they defend their actions, justify the choices they've made, explain why, why they really are not at fault, that they've done the right thing. And, and you've been there, I'm sure, right? You're accused of something, um, you're, you're caught in the wrong, and our first reaction is to, to defend, to be defensive, to say, well, you, you don't understand. Uh, another response is to deflect. Uh, we shift the blame. We try to shift the focus to someone else. It, it's not my fault. It was the only option I had given the circumstances or everyone else was doing or I didn't understand what I was doing. You, you can't hold me accountable. So we deflect, we blame, um, we put the attention to someone else. We shift it away from ourselves. A uh, third response, and this is often what happens when we've deflected or defended and they haven't worked, is that we end in a, in a response of despair. And we realize we can no longer defend our actions, that the deflections have been ineffective, that there's no one else that we can pin this on. We can end up in a place of despair. I wonder, how did we get here? And we despair at ever getting out, of things ever being normal again, of ever being done with this awful circumstance we find ourselves in. And today we're going to take a look at people who have really, they have gone too far. And they, they can't turn back. And so what options do you have when you've gone too far? What are, what are your possible choices in this moment? Well, we see these three responses of deflecting, defending, despairing. We see those in the text this morning. So let's take a look. It's the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, that take the approach of defending. And if you look at verses 1 and 2 in chapter 27, we begin to get into the story. It says, when morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people, those were the, the religious establishment leaders of the, of the Jewish people at that time, they, they took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. These religious leaders, Matthew tells us, took counsel against Jesus. That little phrase means that they, they consulted together to form a plan or a plot. And we saw in the passage that we looked at last week that they have accused Jesus, these religious leaders, of blasphemy. They have been looking for a reason for a long time now to have Jesus put to death. Um, in their minds, Jesus has become far too popular with the people. Uh, he said one too many things against them, the religious elites, the religious establishment. 
They're envious of Jesus' power, his authority, his ability to attract a crowd, and they're afraid. They are afraid that their own power, their own position, their own state of being in control is being threatened. And now they have this blasphemy charge against Jesus. Blasphemy, if you're not familiar, is just simply speaking against or sort of defaming the, the name of God. And the only trouble is that the Romans don't care about blasphemy. This isn't a charge that the Romans are going to put anyone to death for. They've conquered a lot of different people with a lot of different religions. They're not interested in putting someone to death for a blasphemy charge. Because at this point, Jerusalem and all the surrounding region of Judea, Palestine, this is all under Roman control. The Romans have been in charge for a while now. And while the Romans had all kinds of layers of leadership and authority and government, and they often allowed local leaders who were part of that particular people group kind of deal with their own problems and disputes, when it came to the death penalty, the Romans reserved the right to do that themselves. Only a Roman official, only a Roman ruler could, could issue and carry out a death sentence. So in other words, the religious leaders could not legally put Jesus to death. And of course, they could just murder him. But if they wanted to, to have him legally sentenced to death, if he was going to be executed legally by kind of everything in order, they had to find a way to get the Roman government involved. So they formulate a plan. They take counsel together. They come up with a strategy to ensure that Pilate, the Roman governor, has to sentence Jesus to death. We see their plan unfold before Pilate, beginning in verse 11. They bring Jesus before him. and They said, now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. The religious leaders, they, they go to Pilate and tell him that Jesus is calling himself the king of the Jews. But this charge isn't actually true. Matthew never indicates that Jesus called himself the king of the Jews. Jesus does not adopt that kind of political title of king during his earthly reign. I mean, the great irony here, right, of course, is he is the one true king of the whole universe. But he goes by Messiah, Christ. They, both words mean the same thing, to the anointed one, God's chosen one. Jesus is the true king. But his kingdom isn't a kingdom of this world. It's not a political kingdom. It's that's going to be ushered in through a political process or through military might. But the Pharisees and their self-justifying, their self-defense requires that they convince others of the accuracy of the charge. Jesus is trying to be a political king, that he's a threat to the Roman government, that he's threatening to seize rule, that he wants to overthrow Caesar, and, and more precisely, that he's a threat to Pilate's power and position. We do the same kinds of things, don't we? When we begin to realize that we have gone too far in the wrong direction, that things have the potential to add, end badly for us, if, that we need to shift something around quickly, we, we defend. It's not what you think. It's not really a problem. Don't you see? It's, it's all going to work out. Just wait. Just see. We defend uh, we dig in our heels. We start becoming, uh, coming up with reasons for why we are right. 
Are you being defensive in your own life? Do you know what that looks like and that feels like in your relationships? Interesting psychology today, you ran an article a while ago that just named a number of signs that, you know, it was therapists and psychologists have looked at people. What does it look like in relationships to, to act defensively? And here are just a few things they point out. You, you start talking quickly and, and run through a whole series of points without taking a breath. You sort of stop listening. You respond to criticism about your own work or your own actions with criticism about someone else. You use sarcasm or try to get a laugh at someone else's expense. When you start to feel like you've gone too far, when you feel threatened, we can begin to become defensive. But there's another possible response in all this, and that is that we start to deflect. And we realize that we've gone too far, that we're in too deep, and we try to deflect the blame, the attention away from ourselves to someone else to pin the responsibility on anyone other than us. And that's what we see happening in Pilate's story. And Pilate, he's a fascinating character in this story. And I think oftentimes he's, he's misunderstood or he's mischaracterized and portrayed as sort of this weak-kneed pushover of a character who, who's just swayed by the, the crowds and kind of pushed in any direction, that he doesn't have a sort of a backbone to stand up to them. But I think this does Pilate a disservice. It's highly likely that Pilate, before he was a governor here in this Roman province of Judea, that he served as an officer in the Roman army, one of the most powerful military forces in the history of the world, and he would have been a disciplined, trained, educated leader who is decisive and effective. And and history suggests that he ruled Judea with an iron fist. Indeed, the uh, historians Josephus and Philo writing about this period of time and Pilate, they they point out that he's a stubborn and cruel ruler. And just one anecdote that they tell about is there was a a protest, a crowd forming, and Pilate ordered a whole sort of contingent of soldiers to put on, take off their uniforms, put on plain civilian clothes, go into the midst of the crowd, and then he gave an order once they had been kind of distributed throughout the crowd to attack, and they just slaughtered this entire crowd. In other words, Pilate, he, he's not afraid of a bloodbath. But Pilate, he isn't just brutal, he's also smart. Uh, he knows the charges that the religious leaders are bringing before Jesus, before him. They don't warrant a Roman execution. Jesus hasn't committed a capital offense of, under Roman law. Um, I mean, Matthew makes this explicit in verse 18. He says, for he, Pilate, knew that it was out of envy that they, the religious leaders, had delivered Jesus up. And in fact, it seems that Pilate even has a certain amount of respect for Jesus. The composure that he maintains under this incredible pressure is amazing to Pilate. Uh, he knows that Jesus has done nothing to deserve yet, more uh, deserve death, but, and moreover, even Pilate's wife warns him to have nothing to do with this situation. We keep reading in verse 18, we see, besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man. Again, Matthew's just weaving this irony together. Here Jesus is standing accused of all this guilt, and and yet Pilate's wife, this pagan non-Jewish woman, is declaring this is a righteous man. While the own Jewish religious people are trying to convince Pilate that he's guilty. 
There's irony all over this text. Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him in today in a dream. So even though Pilate certainly isn't known for his tenderness, he also isn't interested in executing Jesus. And so he begins to think of ways to compromise, ways to get out of this without starting a riot, but also without taking the trouble to crucify an innocent person. Again, riots, unrest, they aren't looked favorably upon back in Rome. Effective governors, governors who get promoted, governors who aren't dismissed from their roles, they maintain order and peace. So maybe Pilate thinks, maybe I can, I can get away with just beating Jesus up a little bit and then releasing him. That that will satisfy the religious leaders. I've taken some action. I'll pacify the crowds. But the religious leaders, they won't allow for mercy. They organize a crowd to protest. And you can imagine as Pilate's kind of looking out over this space and this crowd's beginning to form and beginning to become more and more unruly, just thinking to himself, how in the world? Just getting more frustrated, more ticked. How in the world did I get drawn into this? This Judean posting is such a crummy assignment. How did I get stuck here? His wife's warning him not to have anything to do with this person. The crowds are demanding his execution. What is he going to do? Again, Pilate does what's kind of a brilliant move in this moment. He decides to make the crowd gathered there an offer that surely they won't refuse. He knows the people that he's governing. He knows their customs. And he knows they have this custom of kind of releasing a prisoner on Passover. And he says, okay, this is my... This is my out. And so he sets up this framework. He's going to give them a choice. I'm tonight, I'm going to release one of two prisoners, but you get to choose which one it is. You can have Barabbas or Jesus. Now, this is why this is a brilliant move for Pilate, seemingly. Barabbas, he's a terrorist. He's a known criminal. He's a Charles Manson type who committed murder and acts of terrorism. He's an awful guy. Pilate's saying, you can have one of two people back on the streets of Jerusalem tonight. You can, I'll put Barabbas back out on the street or you can have Jesus back out on the street. Now, even if you don't love Jesus that much, I mean, he's a teacher, he's a healer. He's not an insurrectionist, terrorist, murderer. I mean, do you see what Pilate's doing? He's saying, well, gosh, even if the crowd doesn't, even if they're kind of stirred up against Jesus, well, he's going to release one person. We definitely don't want Barabbas back on the street. We're afraid of him. Maybe like the mayor of Gotham, right? He's got Batman and he's got the Joker in prison. And he says to the city, who do you want back out on the street, Batman or the Joker? Well, maybe you don't love Batman. He's kind of a vigilante. He kind of seems like a criminal sometimes, but... He's a lot better option than the Joker. But the crowd chooses Barabbas. At that point, it's checkmate. Pilate's hands are tied. Even though he's convinced that Jesus is innocent, he relinquishes authority and judgment, letting the people have their way. As long as the riot subsides, his duty towards Rome is fulfilled. 
But because this stalwart Judean person, Jesus, has made such an impression on Pilate, insists that Jesus' death is not his responsibility. He deflects. Even though it is, yes, his signature on the death warrant and not the crowds, he says the responsibility is on them. He deflects. Verse 24, so when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Pilate deflects. He washes his hands publicly as a symbol of being freed from the blood guilt of Jesus. And the implications are obviously, this is not my fault. This isn't on me. And again here, the, the irony, it's brutal, it's thick, because Pilate washes his hands of Jesus' blood, and the crowd calls out for Jesus' blood to be on them and their children. The irony, of course, is that the that it's only the blood of Jesus that can cleanse and bring about forgiveness and rescue for both Pilate and the crowds. The blood of Jesus is their only hope. But Pilate washes his hands of it and the crowds call down Jesus' blood on them not for their rescue or their forgiveness, but for their condemnation. I think for this is one of the most sort of shudder-inducing passages in all of the Bible for me. When they say, may his blood be on us and our children. But before we're too quick to point the finger at Pilate, we have to realize that we, maybe not to quite the same extreme, but we do the same thing all the time, don't we? We blame shift, we deflect their responsibility. It's not my fault, I'm not the problem, they are. Look, my, my marriage is a mess because my spouse is a jerk, or I'm getting poor grades at school because my teachers are so mean, or but my sister hit me first, all right? It's not my fault. Deflection, blame shifting. We all do it. And it's especially easy to do in circumstances where our absence of action is the problem. Or it's what we left undone, what we're not doing that's the problem. And what do I mean by that? Well, think about bullying at school, right? I mean, sure, there are bullies who are, you know, doing their bullying thing at school, but there are also those who sit quietly by and watch as others are bullied who do nothing. Uh, maybe you've seen uh, recently this video that's kind of circulating all over the internet of this man in Atlanta who breaks up this kind of fight between two boys on the street and there's all these kids just standing around not doing anything, just videotaping it on their phones and he, he kind of he calls them out as cowards. Why, don't you, why aren't you stepping up to do anything? Are we aware of the ways that we're not only deflecting responsibility for the things that we've done, but also for the things, as the Anglican prayer book puts it, that we have left undone. So often those are much harder to see, harder to own and confess and repent of. It's what Pilate leaves undone here that's as much as a problem as what he does. When it seems like you're already too far gone in the wrong direction, when it seems like you can't turn back, sometimes we defend, sometimes we deflect, and other times we simply despair. 
And this is what we see in Judas. Judas, he sees that Jesus is condemned to die. And all of a sudden, it's like the weight of that comes upon him and he can't believe what he's done. Maybe, maybe he didn't believe that the religious leaders were actually going to kill Jesus. Or maybe he did, but now when he sees the reality of it in front of his face, that this is actually happening, that he, that he can't believe it, that it, it sinks in at a new level. But whatever the case may be, we find this in verse 3 of Matthew chapter 27. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver in the temple, he departed and he went and he hanged himself. Judas, Judas he, he changes his mind. He wishes he hadn't done it, but it's too late. The consequences are sealed. Jesus is going to the cross. And there's nothing that Judas can do to stop it. And so he despairs. He just could not bear to live with the fact that he had turned Jesus over to his accusers, that he had knowingly done something so destructive to someone who never showed him anything but love. And so he takes his own life. And despair, it can take over so easily, can it? A sense of it's not getting better, that it's, it's no use, there's no hope, this is it, I, I've blown it, it's over. That this is as good as I can expect it to be despair. And if your life at some point in time has been touched by suicide, you know that it has many roots and causes, right? It's physiological, chemical, mental, emotional, psychological. And yet in any suicide, we feel for that person the, the weight of that sense of overwhelming despair, whatever its causes, that deep element of despair. Let me just say this this morning, if you're feeling that kind of despair, to, to tell someone, to tell me, to tell a friend, your spouse, a parent, your doctor, a teacher, someone, because it doesn't have to end that way. Not all despair inevitably leads to suicide. And yet that feeling of despair is always crushing. I think you know, we all have felt it to one degree or another at some point in our lives, this feeling of despair, whether it's lasted for a few minutes or a few hours, a few months, maybe even a few years, but that sense of despair is always crushing. And a chief feature is that it, there's this sense that there's no way out. And the worst part about it is I think some of the hardest feeling, the, the, the most crushing sense of despair is the result of, of temptation, that Satan, the enemy, he, he tempts us and tempts us and tempts us to, to do something that we know is wrong, to fall back into an addictive pattern that, that we seem like we've, we've been fighting and battling, to do something we, we know is not right. And the promise that, that is held out in those moments of temptation is that this will actually give you the satisfaction you're longing for. Or that at least there'll be relief from the temptation, that, that you won't have to feel this weight, that you won't have to fight anymore, that you can, you can give in and then you can at least have a rest for it from a moment. Here's the trouble. 
The second that we succumb to that temptation, the very one who has been tempting us immediately becomes our accuser. The one who has said all along, just do this, just do this. You'll find the relief, you'll find the hope, you'll find just, come on, just do this. Immediately then says, how could you have possibly done that? You're an awful person. Begins to accuse and pile on guilt. How could you do this? And it leads to despair. We defend, deflect, despair. I mean, none of these is great responses, right? All of these are pretty awful. And yet they often feel like the only responses that we have available to us when we feel like we've gone too far in the wrong direction. And there's a reason for that. These responses have been ingrained in us from the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 3, this is just pages into the story of the Bible. We discover Adam and Eve, the first human beings, rebelling against God. They choose to define right and wrong for themselves. And what do you think happens? What do you think happens when God comes to them? They scramble. They defend. They blame. They deflect. They accuse. They despair. The irony is, again, those complicit in the murder of Jesus here are facilitating the death that would free them from the awful options of despair, defend, deflect. Because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, though, there is a better response. Because here's the good news. With Jesus, even when you've gone too far, you're never too far gone. With Jesus, even when you've gone too far, you are never too far gone. You see, without Jesus' death and resurrection, it's true, we only have the awful options of defend, despair, deflect available to us. But because of Christ's death, because of his resurrection, we no longer have to defend. We don't have to deflect. We don't have to despair because we can be delivered. The tomb is empty. Jesus lives. And when we knowingly do something wrong, we don't have to respond in the same way anymore. Our defense can become surrender. We don't have to prove ourselves anymore. We don't have to prove ourselves right. We can name our sin for what it is, own it, and point to the finished work of Jesus on the cross that's removed it. Our deflecting can become repentance. We don't have to shift the blame anymore. We don't have to point the finger at someone else. We, we can point the finger at ourselves and say, I was wrong and I'm turning around and going the other way, running back into the arms of the one who loves me and gave himself for me. And our despair can become gladness because the one who tempts us and then accuses us again and again has been defeated by the one who through his death and resurrection forgives our sin and defends us from the very accusations of the evil one. You see, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Friends, that is the good news of the gospel. That you no longer have to defend. You no longer have to deflect. You no longer have to despair. Because Jesus, the King, is your advocate forever.
who has forgiven you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you rescue us afresh, or maybe even for the first time from those things, those situations, those circumstances, those actions in which we are defending, deflecting, despairing in, and would we cling anew to the hope that we have a deliverer who pleads a case not against us but for us on the basis of his own shed blood on the cross. We pray this in Jesus' name by the power of the Holy Spirit for your glory. Amen.